Uh, good evening. Uh, it is evening. Um, I just want you to know, Neymar is the sponsor of the cocktails after this is over. And in my capacity as chairman of the Neymar, since I see people leaving the room, no one who leaves now will be served. So you all are stuck here if you want to drink afterwards. Of course, you can get a drink down the street, I know. But Now all we need is a panel. I think I. And if we don't get a panel, we've still got. Don't don't you leave. Yeah, that's good. We need this. I need it. Yeah, there is water here for, but only for the speakers. For the panel. It's all right. It's not too cold. Too warm. Well, the panel is gathering, and it looks like we're going to have at least most of them here, which is pretty good. Uh, remember what I said about the uh, cocktails. Uh, because cocktails are coming up uh, and Neymar is sponsoring, uh, we'll try to keep this as brief and painless as possible. <laughs> See, who's missing? We got one. Exactly. <laughs> Okay. That's too bad. I was going to ask Greg what BTIG stood for, but then I found out. So. Yeah. Okay, we've got uh, Mike Weber on my immediate left, Magnus Fear, Managing Director of Seaport Global. Mike is with Wells Fargo, of course. Randy Gibbons, who we've just heard from, uh, Vice President of Equity Research at Jefferies. Jonathan Chappell, that's Senior Managing Director of Evercore. Uh, Nikolai Dybbuk, Head of Shipping Research at DNB Marcus, Herman Hildon, Managing Director of Clarkson's, Plateau, and uh, Gregory Lewis, who is uh, not here. Um, I'm going to start with, uh, first of all, nearly all the questions that I was going to ask have been answered So I'm going to, uh, during the course of the day. So I'm going to throw a few general ones at you and then let you folks take over and I will feed questions to you if it begins to look like you're running out of things to say. How's that? Um, I'm going to start with this question. Anyone who wants to take a shot at it, it's a, it's a very slow, soft pitch. Do you agree that the maritime industry as a whole now is in a better position than it was in 2008, at least in some ways, to weather a new recession? Anybody want to look at Looking back at 2008, those of you who were alive then, what do you think? Are we in better position now if something bad happens? The black swan that one of these gentlemen referred to? Yeah. Herman, you go. I'm going to give it a shot. I mean, I think it's clear that today is a much better time to be in the shipping industry than 2008, knowing what happened the, the 10 years after 2008. So I would definitely say yes, much better today. You can say the difference between 08 and now is that in, in, in 08, all ship values were all-time high. And now ship values are historic low. Uh, yes, you've seen some segments recovering from, from the bottom, but if you go a year back, all shipping segments traded uh, had rates below cash break even. Uh, some today are having above, uh, but that's just uh, started. 
But if I understood the question correctly, Clay, it's is, is the industry better today to withstand a problem like a financial crisis? And then I would argue, no, it's not better because the asset values are so low, because the LTVs are so stretched, because the balance sheets are so poor, because the stock prices are so low, because the investor interest is so much lower than it was 10 years ago. No, I don't think it's better today to withstand a financial crisis than it was in 2008. 2008 provided quite the runway, and this time you have so much more overcapacity across the entire industry than you did 10 years ago. Let me throw a quote at you. Now, this is from a man named Daniel Arbus, who's the CEO of Zerion Investments, and he wasn't talking about shipping. He was talking about the global economy. But he said, and I quote, higher rates are coming, possibly heralding a tsunami of credit defaults, unquote. If that does happen or something like that, heaven forbid, we're not talking about shipping, what would the impact be, as you see it, as analysts, on our various sectors? of the shipping industry. You want to take a stab at that? Remember, nobody's going to remember what you yeah, predicted I'll, I'll, next year. Next I'll year, you won't, be, you won't be held responsible. I mean, I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say that credit defaults are bad, um, and it's generally going to be bad for the space. Um, but I, I would say that even within the context of some of the, even if you take kind of interest rate-driven credit defaults uh, off the table, like what we, we recently downgraded the container names on the premise of heightened counterparty risk from IMO. I think that the, generally speaking, the, the, the names that we cover um, typically move around based on the, in, to some degree, on the counterparty risk of their larger peers and their larger, their larger customer bases. So if you see names like CMA, uh, MSC, some of the mid-tier container lines starting to, uh, to, to bleed uh, even more so than they already are, I think that's going to be bad for just about any ancillary sector, any supporting sector, and this, uh, that's supported over a, a lot of historical data, kind of correlating bond yields to equity prices. Um, but uh, beyond that, I, in, the, in terms of widespread moves in interest rates hurting shipping, I mean, it's certainly not good for things that are priced in dollars and made out of steel. Um, and more constrained capital availability in that scenario is generally also not great for balance sheets. So I'll, I'll turn it over to somebody else if they want to swing it. Well, Jonathan that. wants to say something, don't you, Jonathan? You're, you're Dr. Doom. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna the last panel was so sunny, I think it's time we dumped a little bit of cold water on the, everybody. I'm going to take the opposite of Dr. Doom, though. I mean, I agree with, with Mike's premise. Obviously, rising interest rates for companies that have extensive leverage isn't the best thing in the world. But to a certain extent, maybe it does keep the hands in the pockets forcefully of ship owners. So when you do have the beginning of an upturn to a market, you don't see a rush to the yards again, and you can actually have a prolonged upturn. So maybe in a perverse way, a rising interest rate environment manages supply better throughout the course of a cycle, and like I said, elongates an upturn. I mean, the biggest issue is going to be the deflationary impact on the dollar and the fact that all these are NAV trades. So if you're not seeing a lot of Asset inflation, it's going to be tough for these names to re-rate outside of a, a larger multiple, which to John's point, you know, maybe down the line, if you see a lot more capacity discipline, you could see that. But the biggest issue is going to be the deflationary impact on the dollar. I'm looking for other comments on this. Does everybody else sort of uh, want to hang back and not? Okay. Nobody wants to say anything more. Well, we heard quite a bit about IPOs earlier today. And uh, as we all know, there have been a number of, uh, shall we say, unsuccessful efforts 
uh, during the past couple of months. Uh, IPOs are very important to our market here in New York, generally. What's happening? Do you think there's a chance we're going to see, as, as they say about uh, the big, the, the uh, Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey, are the big, big bands coming back? Uh, are we going to have an IP, any more IPOs, or are they a thing of the past for the foreseeable future? Yeah, the, there were some unsuccessful IPOs recently. Um, Jeffries was not on any of those, but coincidence or not. Um, there have been some very successful secondary offerings uh, recently. I know Scorpio Tangers just did one 10 minutes ago. Um, that said, for a successful IPO, you need scale. You need some kind of diversification or differentiation. Uh, you can't just have some spot cape sizes and say, hey, give us money um, at a premium to NAV when everyone else is trading at a discount. So there's a lot of variables that go into it. I think the biggest will be scale. You can't do a $100 million, $150 million um, IPO. It's got to be 300 plus. Yeah, if I can add to that, I think the uh, investors are a little smarter, um, you know, over the years looking at some of these IPOs. You mean we've learned something? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that went on the market in 2000, between 2000 and 2006 that probably shouldn't have, you know, come public. and. Uh, I think the market is a lot more selective now. So, you, like Randy said, you have, have to have a good story, and um, you know, big market cap will help definitely. Any other thoughts? I know the, co the cocktails are already already being set up. Well, I mean, just to the which haven't brought in here. Uh, we've gotten smarter. Uh, <laughs> so, in the, before the summer, I was a bit curious to kind of figure out what was the first time the shipping markets reached an all-time low. Uh, and Clarkson history goes back 60-something years. And the first time in the broker reports where they said that the, this is an all-time low was in 1884. Uh, and the three key reasons for the downturn in the market at the time that the brokers highlighted was A, too much ordering of tonnage the last three years. 134 years ago, so this is when steamships were out competing vessels with sails, okay? The second was reckless credit given by banks and shipyards. And the final point was uh, irresponsible behavior by, sh by ship owners. When you think about the essence of the things we've been discussing over the last couple of years, I think, uh, you know, back to the point that people learn and we get smarter, I think uh, it's, uh, it's evidence that, uh, and, and by the way, the 1880s also ended with a real freight boom described as never seen in the shipping industry before. And I think the point is that even though the last 10 years have been a very tough part, I mean, I would argue it's been the worst and most challenging period of modern shipping history. It's, it's a cyclical industry. It goes up and it yep. goes down. And I think that's, uh, we, we talk about uh, at this point in time, I think we are a year and a half into the recovery of the shipping markets. And, uh, and uh, there are a lot of people that need to wake up to what's going on. I mean, we have LNG rates of $100,000 a day. We have tanker rates moving from 20 to $40,000 yeah. a day. So uh, I, I think it's, uh, without being specific about any IPOs that we have been involved in, I think uh, the bottom line is that the owners, they had a choice. They could take the price that the market was willing to pay, and they weren't willing to take that price. So uh, they will come back to the market at the latest stage uh, and do it at the price that they're happy with. So I think it's whether you execute an IPO successfully or not, I think it really boils down to the price and price expectations. And yes, of course, there's going to be more IPOs in the future, no doubt about it. I think the, the market's definitely still there for the right deal. Um, 
but aside from even just scale, there needs to be a reason for existing, right? Or a reason why something is coming to the public markets besides just simply a kind of a, a me too kind of a kind of hopping into the same trade. Um, but it certainly seems like the market has has gotten more selective, and hopefully, analysts and banks have gotten better at at aligning themselves with companies that they want to they want to put to the public market. There's a a line of thought around the fact that you could pitch equity to invest to investors, and no one's putting a gun to their head and making them buy that. Um, but at the same the same time, that's the same logic that drug dealers use, right? So there's a there's a responsibility that goes into that, and I think that on the whole, the quality of the deals that have been brought to the street, not completely, but for the most part, have been probably better over the last five years and you know the five years before that. So hopefully that continues. If you if you look in in dry bulk and and crude tankers, I have a hard time to see IPOs taking place since you have already several uh, market caps above a billion dollar uh, and you have good companies. Uh, if you look in the product space, uh, uh, there is uh, not that many publicly listed companies with a large market cap and a low cash break even. And in that segment, you need a low cash break even to make money. And uh, among some of the listed peers, uh, at their cash break even, you seldom make money. Uh, so I, I would much welcome something in the product space, uh, and I think that's doable. Uh, and uh, on the LNG market, there's so many different uh, vehicles. Uh, you could be exposed to FSRUs, MLPs, uh, uh, liquid, floating liquefaction. Uh, but uh, yes, you have flex LNG. It's now emerging with larger scale. Uh, but I think in, in shipping on the LNG side, probably yes. Um, anyone else want to comment on that? Because I have a, one follow-up thing. Listening to uh, um, Dr. Henderson of Shell at lunch today, for those of us who were there, talking about safety at sea, talking about um, the, the health of the seafarer, it occurred to me that that may be the beginning of the next regulatory cost that is imposed upon the ship owner and operator. Uh, it has been the case, and I haven't used the S word yet. Every other panelist just says, we're not using the S word, okay? You know what the S word is. What is the S word? If you don't know by now, I'm not going to tell you. Every single panel has talked about it, yeah. Uh, I thought we were going to say super profits. We're not going to use the S word. It's too late in the day for that. But the what has been driving up, ultimately, the cost of shipping, and listening to Bob Burke in the last panel, he had a big grin on his face, as he often does, because I think Bob gets it. There's going to be, the fact that these regulatory costs are being piled on the ship owner probably is going to be a very useful barrier to entry into the shipping industry. This may actually work towards continuing to reduce the amount of tonnage out there. I don't know, but I'm just going to ask you, do, do you agree with what I just said? that regulation, IMO, and I'm not just talking about 2020, I'm talking about all the regulatory burdens that are hitting the industry and may come up because the bureaucrats will think of more uh, in the next couple of years. Global warming is not gonna disappear just because the US government says it's disappeared. Uh, what do you think is gonna happen to, what's the effect of that gonna be on the present tonnage overhang? Anybody want to comment on that? Because that, I think, is one of the major factors that will influence the prosperity of the industry. 
we can cut back on the number of ships that are out there, it's going to be better for those of us who are still in the business. True or false? Do you agree with me? Do you disagree with me? I'll say I'm throwing false. this out to you. This is not a received truth, Jonathan. It's just something I want to hear you. Well, I don't think it's an easy question to answer, honestly, but I think Herman's uh, 1884 recital made a lot of sense as it relates to this. I mean, if we're talking about operating costs going up 10 or 20 percent in a bull market, that's not a barrier to entry. If the shipyards have the capacity, if the owners are making good returns, if the banks are lending at good rates, if the equity markets are open, an extra $3,000 a day isn't going to keep the new entrant out. So I think it's false. I mean, unless it becomes such a punitive legal environment where the fines are huge or the liabilities become, you know, detrimental, I, I, no, I, I don't think so. I think it's false. Anyone else want to comment on that? Everybody's very quiet. Um, I think we're going to end early. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to ask one or, one or two more questions, then I'm going to ask the audience if you have any questions. And if you don't, uh, we're going to go next door. Uh, the um, uh, true or false, uh, you think syndicated deals will dominate the market in the next five years or so? Yes or no? We've heard a lot about that today, but I'd like to hear your opinion. We can start with you, Michael. No, I'd rather talk about IMO. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Probably. Herman? I don't have a strong opinion about syndicated deals, to be honest. Anybody else? Oh, I'm good. an equity analyst. I can give you my top pick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so just to, to jump back, and I appreciate John swinging at that question. Um, I, in terms of whether it keeps, whether regulation keeps the fleet from growing. If anything, it seems like it's presenting an opportunity um, or a degree of inefficiency, which typically attracts capital. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know, I think I tend to agree with John. But in terms of what we're looking at for, for the next couple of years, I think 2020 is gonna be a pretty pivotal year, not just from IMO, uh, but also the new accounting regulations, um, the changes in lease accounting, which are gonna change the behavior of a lot of public uh, leasing companies, um, or lessors rather. Uh, or both. Um, I think across anything with long-term charters or tenor, um, you know, the counterparties behind those are going to have to recognize that as debt. And I think over time, it's going to change a lot of the operating models for for a number of companies. Um, so yeah, I tend to think of it as an opportunity. I mean, we've obviously seen people try to raise capital on the back of it. So I think I would love for it to be a barrier to entry, but it simply doesn't seem like that's the case. But I think we'll look back on 2020. Um, after a few years of being pretty pivotal for the space in general, and generally uh, pretty positive. I think um, certainly the, the environmental regulations seem like at least a step in the right direction, if not maybe, maybe not the, the right step, but it's at least a step in the right direction. And um, certainly seems like it's going to create some inefficiency to benefit the equities. But. Yeah, I could, I could agree with you. And I think the other, I mean, it's, we talk about regulatory changes as something that's new. I mean, single hull, double hull, uh, sailing ships to steam ships. I mean, it's, uh, it's yeah, happened you're, you're from day one. I, it's the evolution of the industry. And I think uh, bottom line is uh, it's at the end of the day, a good thing that should be looked upon as an opportunity rather than a threat. And obviously in this environment that we've been over the last couple of years, making new investments is not really something that's very, uh, 
something you look upon with uh, with uh, optimism, given uh, the capital constraint that you have on the shipping industry. But uh, regulatory change will happen in the future, as it has in the past. Mm. And uh, the bottom line, I mean, IMO 2020, the, it's it's a good thing for the world health. So I think. It will continue. I don't think it's going to derail or change or You're not worried be anything about different. It, no. Disrup disruption is good since owners tend to, to order too much. And if you have regulatory changes every now and then, you, you have a chance to take away that overhang. And uh, uh, yes, why you've seen a lot of, uh, of VLCC scrapping this year? Is it regulations coming or is it since the market's been poor? Uh, I think it's probably a combination. And, uh, and let's see how many ships will be scrapped when, when VL rates now are $40,000 a day and, and look towards you know, 2019 and 2020. I think it's good, you know, many talk about lots of scrapping potential on the tanker side, but I think it's good to remember and probably give some credit to Bob Burke, uh, who bets on the older ships uh, once again, uh, that the ship that obtained the highest rate uh, during the single hull phase out was a single hull ship, since that was the last uh, ship standing and fixed that has to obtain the highest rate. Uh, one good thing with the new uh, regulations, uh, we've seen a lot of the dry bulk owners that are one of the few uh, segments that are making cash now. They're actually spending their excess cash on scrubbers rather than going to the shipyards and ordering new ships. Okay, I have another question, and then I think we'll go over, turn it over to the audience very briefly. Um, let's pretend that I just inherited a lot of money from George Soros, uh, my uncle, my rich uncle, and I want to invest in the shipping industry. You think I should sink my money into Lois Zabraki's company back there? Answer yes or no. Yes, absolutely. Let's go down from the very, from the, yes? What was the question? I didn't hear the question. Company. Well, Lois is sitting right back there. She's the CEO of a major shipping company, uh, which, uh, which I, I hold in very high regard. And I've inherited all this money from my, we won't say he's deceased, but let's pretend, uh, George Soros, my, my wealthy uncle, uh, and uh, my extremely wealthy uncle, and I want to sink it into a shipping company. Not to the point where I take it over, you understand, but uh, uh, would you recommend that I uh, invest heavily in uh, Lois's company? Yeah. Definitely. I, I think, you know, that's one of the companies that we think look attractive on valuation, trading at a pretty good discount to NAV, and, uh, you know, one of the few that uh, actually are trading at pretty good discount. So, yeah, we would buy an INSW. I, I, I think the answer is going to be a 100% yes from the panel. So instead of kind of going through that, it's instead talk about what's good about Lewis's company, right? I mean, she mm -hmm. does have a few older ships uh, that, uh, as Nikolaj just said, that's where you get the most bang for the buck when uh, values. If you, I would say the tanker market today is where Drybook was in 2016. And what you saw was the heavy discount on second-hand values yeah. went straight back to parity. So the ships that uh, some might say that she should scrap today is probably where she's going to make the most money. The other thing which is good about international CUAs is obviously the low cash back even. Uh, the, uh, instead of making up your mind that I think uh, I want to have a 100% VLCC company, there you get a bit exp you know, exposure to the different types of the tanking market, both crude and product. So I'm not sure if anyone wants to add any other positives or negatives for that matter. I guess this is the time to have the conversation, right? Jonathan, Jonathan do you agree? 
Um, so let's take the two questions separately. I don't cover Lois's company, so I can't opine on that officially, but I love Lois and Jeff, so sure, we'll throw some money your way. Okay. <laughs> I also like Herman, but what I hate is the tanker industry today is the dry bulk industry of 2016. I really disagree with that. The order book for VLCCs is much larger today than it was for dry bulk in 2016. Dry bulk 2016 was coming off two years of artificially deflated demand that then immediately became an inflationary demand environment, which is beneficial, and I don't see that with tankers. In fact, most agencies are lowering their demand forecast for next year. So, listen, I get the Dr. Doom moniker for a reason, and I'm not negative on everything, but crew tankers today I do not think are dry bulk 2016, and, and therefore I think there's better uses for your George Soros inheritance, Clay. Crew tankers today is what LPG was in 14, 15. Uh, huge benefit of U.S. exports on Tom Mile. Uh, you see what's happened on the LNG side. You saw what happened on the LPG side. You haven't seen it on tankers yet since uh, since uh, you've had uh, years of high delivery growth, way over capacity, inventory draw as opposed to shipping production. Uh, but now you have uh, zero fleet growth most likely this year. Iranian floating storage, Saudi Arabia and uh, Russia ramping up for shortfall of Iran and the U.S. ton mile, the average sailing distance out of the U.S. is 70% higher uh, last observation uh, relative to Middle East. So you tie up 70% more tankers out of the U.S. That's going to have a huge impact on tankers. So tankers is LPG replay, 14-15. And I'll add some love to INSW. So we initiated on them about a week ago as our top pick in the space. Uh, shares trading at a 20% discount to NAV, industry-leading balance sheet. They have some FS, uh, FSO joint ventures, LNG joint ventures. Probably the best diversified um, tanker company uh, with some products, with some crude, with some scrubbers now. So mm. INSW for sure, $30 price target. Michael. So, yeah, I don't know whether they're... I, I, I want to comp the tanker market to the dry bulk market of 16 or the car carrier market of 1977 or any of that stuff, but <laughs> I, I, like to, I like to work backwards on this sort of stuff, and I do think it's, I generally think tankers are superior equities to dry, simply because it's easier for me to see an institutional investor taking you out of a mid-cycle thesis. They're more liquid. They're going into energy books where people already understand the dynamics. Um, so. If you look at the tanker market, especially the next couple of years, they're the only sector that we cover that are not price takers when it comes to IMO um, on a net basis. And I would argue that on the recruit over products in the sense that the equivalent, you know, with, with MR is at 35, 36 million, mm -hmm. the equivalent V price is 104, right? So you're stepping in at a, at a much steeper discount to crude names today. And then to answer your question on Lois's company, I don't cover INSW, but if I'm working backwards, I think there are better relative ways to get that exposure simply because I can find more liquidity um, in some of the bigger names. Uh, eventually, I, I, I do think they will get there, but um, they would be in a basket, but if I'm picking one name to own heading into this, it would be one of the names under my coverage. That's probably a bit And, and what, are, what are they, if I may ask? Sorry, Lois. What's that? Cargo? What'd you say? Oh, uh, we're long, uh, we, we upgraded the names in June, so you're now frontline. DHT are the three primary beta trades. Um, Frontline's more expensive than the other two, but it's hard for me to see the tanker trade working without Frontline working too. So I think they're in the same group. But Euronav has traditionally been our favorite tanker name. I would probably bet down the line that Euronav is probably everybody's favorite or in their top two. Mm -hmm. I don't want to speak for everybody, but um, but yeah. So that and then the 1977 car carrier market. Car carrier. Thank but, you. But that now, 
But that, since we have some more time, I mean, this is your chance to talk about how the tanker market is for all of shipping IMO 2020s, and you know, obviously positive because of the potential supply disruption. But obviously, the tanker market has a an addition to that one on the demand side. Yeah. So it's, do you want to uh, elaborate on that? <laughs> it's hard to think, come up with ways to destroy three and a half million barrels of high sulfur fuel oil without using more crude. Right? So if it's not all destroyed on day one, and we put math together to the, the yes. basically points to the fact that we're already systemically long four or five VLCCs of floating storage as we stand today, um, which should kick in in March of, of 20, uh, 2020. But there are just very few permutations when you, the Goldman had a good piece out. Um, I just saw Justine kind of working backwards. It's probably like an elegant solution to kind of back into how many scrubbers you need and different permutations to balance the market. You use the S word. And they're, they're all big numbers and they all assume a ton of efficiency that's not going to be there. So if you start stripping some of that efficiency out, mm -hmm. um, it's going to be really messy um, and it's usually really good for crew tankers. So I, I would, I would, the first, first comp that comes to my mind is a single whole phase out. Everyone saw that coming, but in terms of an exogenous shock to exogenous, I guess it's a demand shock, but exogenous shock to the utilization curve, um, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Yes. Uh, Nikolai, you agree? Yeah, I think I, I... I need advice. I got this money uh, burning a hole we, in my We pocket. upgraded tankers in March of this year. Uh, then rates were four. Now they're 40. And let's see where they are in 2020. Oh, so you're going to wait and see. No, I'm not going to wait and see. We, we've, we've placed our bet six months ago. And it's panning out. Well, did you understand what he just said? I didn't understand what you just said. So he just, he just what said was he, the bet that you placed six months ago? We, I think, uh, There's an echo in this room, so I need, I need clarification. Okay, uh, on the tankers? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Older I think, tankers. Uh, I think that the first phase, uh, when we upgraded in March, we argued that you should buy the most levered companies since it wasn't a cash flow play, it was an asset appreciation play. Uh, now I think a bit different. Now you've seen values going from 84 to, to the low 90s, and uh, we think that uh, Euronov has probably got a bit of a um, uh, challenging first months uh, post the IPO since there is a few legs okay. of previously bankrupt companies uh, into the shareholder list, uh, so there's probably a bit of overhang. It trades at 10% uh, discount to NAV, and Frontline trades at 70% premium to NAV, and uh, I think that uh, people have been, I think if you look at the coverage universe, there's a bit 50% 50, 50 being positive and 50% being negative. And uh, buying into a $2 billion uh, market cap company uh, at 10% discount to NAV, yeah, I think that's uh, probably the, be the best buy today. That sounds like pretty good advice to me. What do, what do you think, Jonathan? Do you agree? I think I've already made my views clear that I'm not as bullish as my peers here on I tankers. <laughs> um, but if there is a way to play it, Euronav is our topic on the crude side too. And it's more, it's, it's because you get the operational leverage and the earnings upside to a recovery, but you also have the downside protection from a much better balance sheet in a downturn. And, and the valuation, as Nikolai said, um, frontline can go from three to six, it can go from six to three just as fast. So I'd rather be in a steady state in the early innings. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, uh, Randy, do you, oh, I know you already made your views known also, but uh, do you still, have you changed your mind for after hearing this? Nope, uh, International Seaways first, you're on F second. Oof. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, that, that, le that leaves us with uh, uh, um, uh, Magnus. If I change my view or? 
Pardon? I can't hear you. There's too many echoes down here. No. Either that or it's pick, my age. Uh, we actually like Uranav. I agree with Uranav as our top pick. And we like the crude segment for the reasons stated. I mean, we think the crude exports, the OPEC exports, and potential for floating storage should, uh, uh, you know, be very positive for the market. And keep in mind, to invest in the, in the shipping sector, you sort of have to be a contrarian to make the big returns. And I think the market is still not 100% sure that we're going to see a recovery in the crude market next year. So that's why you would buy tankers today. Okay. Well, that's, thank you very much. Now, we have time for one or two questions from uh, members of the audience. I see some very knowledgeable members of the audience, but they don't seem to want to ask questions. Uh, Dagfin, do you have a question? There's one over here on the left. Who's got a, a hand up? We need a, we need a microphone for this gentleman here. We'll, re we'll repeat your question. You repeat the question. Uh, it's an interesting that you mentioned NPV. Uh, you mean NAV, I guess. Oh, sorry, yeah. and yeah. Net asset. Because I think the NPV is much higher than the NAV. That's my value. point. So the question is, why do you think so many of shipping companies trade under net present value of the ships? Is it, as uh, John Fredericks normally says, because of bad management? Or is it some other reason? I think management plays a role. Um, also, liquidity, market cap. You know, we like stealth gas, for example, but with their market cap of, I don't know, $250 million, uh, it's not much liquidity. It's hard to get large investors in the name, although they're trading at a 50% discount to NAV. Now, with some of that a management discount, I'll let you be the judge, but I think a lot of it is liquidity market cap discounts as well. I think the market uh, or the shipping sector has a very poor track record of generating positive returns over a long period of time. So everybody's trying to evolve around the NAV valuation. And, you know, you can look at the NAV in different ways, but, uh, you know, maybe the market is right. So if uh, stock is trading at a 20% discount to NAV, maybe that's where NAV should be. I think what's a bit kind of unique about the shipping industry when you compare it to other industries is the fact that, uh, for example, Coca-Cola or these companies, you, you can create a lot of value by the, the actions that management takes. But on, in the shipping industry, the value creation to a big extent is actually external. And that makes the management of shipping companies more, call it steward of capital, rather than creating value from within. Uh, so to say that the discount on the uh, underlying values is driven by poor decision-making within the shipping company, I, I think is a bit of a stretch. I think it's more that the capital market is, uh, I mean, the ship brokers are lagging. If you look at the price to NAV throughout the cycle, when, when values are increasing, you see that the equities are being priced at a premium to NAV. And then, when they're falling, they're being at the, uh, priced at a discount. And I think at this point in time, we are uh, and I, we are a year and a half into the recovery. If you look on the Clarkson New Building Index and the second-hand price index for all values in shipping, they bottomed out in December 2015. And, and uh, you know, 2000 and 
2017, sorry, 2018 run rate is the second lowest number of year of, of number of ships being ordered since 1996. The lowest was, 90, it was 2016, and the third lowest is 2017. And despite, I'm talking about number of ships, not in relative or anything like that, despite record low contracting activity, the new Castle Max new building price have added half a million dollars on average per month the last 12 months. The VLCC have added, what, eight million dollars uh, year to date or something. So I think it's um, the, um, I, what we see is that the, if you look over the long period of time, there are long inflationary and deflationary cycles. What Martin Stopfer talks about the long cycles in maritime economics. And we believe that we've bottomed out on the 10 year deflationary cycle. And, and uh, obviously, I think it takes time before the market is willing to, to buy into that. You want to see the evidence, but uh, we're at an inflection point, so. I think you should, could add that, uh, that uh, there is also a distinction between companies having a, a major shareholder uh, where they invite other shareholders to, to co-invest and share the upside as opposed to have uh, shareholders on one side and management, uh, management on another side with uh, little skin in the equity. It, it, you need context behind it. So the equ equities are a forward-looking mechanism, so trading above or below your NAV just tells you what direction the the market thinks assets are going. Um, so that's why we need a trough and a mid-cycle nav and then kind of plotting current nav against that. Uh, but if you look at it over the course of a cycle, if someone's getting a discount to any of you over the course of the cycle, that's gonna be the market saying that management destroys value. And I think that when you look at the, the bulk of this space and the bulk of the public history, there are an awful lot of people that came before you that destroyed an awful lot of value. So I think you're kidding yourself if you think it's not an uphill battle to convince investors that you need a premium 10 AV when there's that much Crap history behind you. So, some people can do it at like asset agnostic asset managers like Fredrickson with the big history of return of, of outsized returns get a systemic premium 10 AV. There are some others that, that do as well, but um, you need context and then you're fighting an uphill battle because of the sins from 2005 to today. So, who's still optimistic? Optimistic. Optimistic. Yeah, yeah, 100%. One, two, three, four. Come on, Jonathan? <laughs> Jonathan? I mean, I generally am. I'm positive on LNG. I'm positive on dry bulk. You know, it, it just, let's not get too optimistic. We had to write this little paragraph for the booklet that Nicholas is passing out. And my last sentence was, I, I pretty, I'm finally optimistic about the industry in general, but let's not get too excited because inevitably the barriers to entry are still really low and, and the cycles will, will end and they'll end in tears. And I think Mike had a really great point there and I wanted to bring it up myself, but not maybe be as inflammatory, but here we go. I have a minute, 30 seconds left, so let's just end on a good note. Um, the, the group in general, and it doesn't matter whether it's LNG, dry bulk, product tankers, crude tankers, almost every stock we cover trades at a discount to NAV right now. And I think a lot of that has to do with the cycles are seven years of downturns, two years of upturns. No one can time it really well. You don't want to be early because that's painful. Mm -hmm. If you're too late, it's just, you're going to be the last one holding the bag. And the value destruction across the industry has been, been noteworthy. And the only people who've made money in this industry over the last 10 years since, two, since the financial crisis have been the ship owners. We haven't made any. The investors certainly haven't made any. I mean, it's amazing that we're still all here. Um, that's that's it is. So I'm very optimistic about the next two years, but beyond that, it's hard to see how the game changes. 
It's put in a much nicer way. Maybe we can uh, ask we've been, them. We've been nice for 10 to 15 years. It's not working. So maybe just calling a spade a spade. There's been a lot of value destruction. There's no hiding that. There's no way around that. Like, I don't know who we're kidding by saying there hasn't been. So can we ask maybe each one of them which are your sector picks? I mean, clearly a number well, of Well, I tried you, to do that already. Uh, yeah, a number of them are <laughs> bullish on tankers, but is there any other sector that you're uh, bullish on? Or? Could we? We're, we're, we're long crude, crude tankers uh, and, and LNG, um, so short containers. Pick one sector, I would pick shipping. I think all of it looks fantastic. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. if there's one guy you should listen to, it's definitely him. So, buy everything. The cycles in shipping are becoming shorter and shorter, and the beauty about shipping is what goes up comes down, and uh, what goes down comes up, and now we're at the low point. And uh, uh, LNG, so, so it's, you know, you will always uh, talk about long-term returns in shipping. You shouldn't be invested over a long time. You should uh, cherry-pick your moments, and uh, we think LNG is probably the sweet spot to be in now. Let me, can I arrest you a bit there, or not you, but the, the, there's a, one thing I think is important, if you, again, if you read Martin Stopford's Maritime Economics, where he talks yes. about the, the he's 20... He's a colleague of yours, sir. Yeah, he's a colleague of mine, but he talks about the 22 cycles, the last 270 yes. years, and the median cycle is actually 10.4 years, from peak to peak. Well, there you are. So this cycle, people say the cycles are getting shorter. It's actually quite the opposite. We, we were still uh, waiting to get to the peak. You know, it's 10 years ago. So It's available at www.clarksons.net. Mm -hmm. Let me say that the upturns will be uh, shorter since China's built out the shipyard capacity. They pay for the commodity, which is freight and commodity. Hence, if they destroy uh, or build out the shipping industry, their imported goods will be low, low cost. So that's why the up cycles will be shorter. Okay, time will show. We've already heard from you, Jonathan. So. Enough, plenty enough. <laughs> so I uh, like dry bulk for sure over the next four months, um, but longer term, crew tankers um, and LNG carriers. Yeah, we're uh, long most of the sectors. The um, dry bulk is probably furthest ahead. I'd, I'd say most stocks are not reflecting the, the positive cash flow that we're seeing generated. So. We'll be a little careful with dry bulk once we move further into the cycle. But I think crude tankers and LNG, it's just coming off the bottom, and I think you can get a good runway there. So we like both crude and LNG. Okay, can I offer a, a vote of thanks to, uh, first of all, the panel? Can you please, let's give them a round of applause for going on on our own. I'm going out, I'm going out and, and I'm buying uh, uh, one particular stock. The lady, the lady in the back there. And, uh, you must be a shareholder already. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think I am, yeah. And I, I already am, I'm buying more. And I want to thank uh, Nick Bornozes and Annie uh, and, and uh, Olga and all the other people who make uh, Capital Link really work and, and who really put this whole program together. Uh, you make it easy for all of us. Thank you very, very much for everything you do. Thank you.